0: We have actually arrived at the end of the book of Daniel. Uh, And since this is the last sermon in this series, I figure it would be good to review the land that we've covered. Uh, As a young teenager, Daniel was forced out of Jerusalem. The city he grew up in, it was overthrown. It was destroyed. And mysteriously, Daniel understood that this was the work of God, that God was both bringing judgment and redemption upon his people. And Daniel, in this process, is relocated To Babylon, and that's where he spent his life in exile. And for the first three years of his life in Babylon, Daniel goes through an intense process of assimilation. He is no longer an Israelite. He must be a Babylonian. But somehow, Daniel managed to maintain his sense of identity. He continued to live as an Israelite while seeking the welfare of Babylon. He was even employed in the government of Babylon, the very government that overthrew his city. And from being a Teenage youth, all the way into being an old man, he served Babylon. And he maintained his convictions. That's a beautiful feat. But what we see is it was not always easy. Serving Babylon and serving the God of Israel put Daniel's life at risk. And one time he even spent a night in the lion's den. And throughout his life, uh, Daniel saw God work in amazing ways in Babylon and perhaps to his surprise Daniel got to see God at work in none other than King Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon it was to this king this pagan king that God gave visions of dreams about the everlasting kingdom of God that would one day displace every earthly nation and Daniel was given the ability and the gift to know these dreams and interpret these dreams but they're given to Nebuchadnezzar And Daniel got a first-hand ticket to see Nebuchadnezzar not only come to acknowledge God, but to profess faith in the God of Israel before he died. But Daniel, he outlived Nebuchadnezzar and he grew older and older. And he saw the reality of these dreams come to pass. He saw Babylon fall. He saw Persia come in. So Daniel is growing older. And in his later years, He starts to have dreams. He starts to have visions. And he too dreams about this future everlasting kingdom of God that will displace all these corrupt earthly kingdoms. And yet throughout his life, Daniel is wrestling, especially as he gets older, God, when will I go home? And he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he sees a promise that in 70 years after exile, God will bring his people back to Jerusalem. And so Daniel's saying, it to my estimations, Lord, looks like you should be sending us home. And God answers Daniel. He says, yes, you will return home, but returning home will not fix the issues of your heart or your nation's heart. You will return home, and once again, you'll be faithless, And once again, you'll experience suffering. And Daniel has a vision about the future in which a Greek king named Antiochus IV will come and wreak havoc upon the people of God and ransack the temple around 167 BC, way into the future for Daniel. Finally, in chapters 10 through 12, Daniel has one more vision that he reports to us at least. And once again, this vision is mostly about Antiochus IV But now Daniel sees something much worse. That Antiochus the force, he's just like a paradigm. He's just a a glimpse of how bad things will get before the last king rules before the kingdom of God comes. That's the gist of Daniel's life as we understand it in the book of Daniel. But what's the point? What's the point of it all? Daniel either died in exile And never saw home. Or Daniel returned home and died in Jerusalem, knowing that Jerusalem would fall once again. And this last vision he saw is gut wrenching. So, what's the point? How does knowing this help Daniel? How does it help us live now? But, like every part of the book of Daniel, Daniel is always answering the questions how do we live in a foreign land, and how do we fit in here without being swallowed up? It's the last time you're going to have to hear me say that. You're welcome. Everything Daniel knows about the future, everything Daniel sees, it doesn't breed complacency. It doesn't breed despair. Daniel doesn't retreat. He doesn't give up. Rather, the promises he sees about the future change how he lives in the present. Let me put it another way. Daniel's eschatology is never about escape. It's for endurance. Daniel's understanding and his theology of the end isn't just wishful thinking, it changes his present. As I said last week, I'm not going to go into the details of this last vision. If you want to do that, I can send you to some resources. Rather, last week we looked at how Daniel was prepared for this vision, and this week we're going to look at how Daniel responds to this last vision. So here's the idea I want to explore. God gives us the promise of resurrection, and it changes how we live now. And there's two points that will help us see see this point. The promise and living with the promise. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. You can take one of our church Bibles home with you if you don't own one. Everything's on the screen behind me. Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Let's begin by looking at the promise. Remember, Daniel has been thoroughly prepared to receive the vision described in chapter 11 and 12. We're told in chapter 10 that Daniel heard an angel speak and it caused him to fall asleep. The angel wakes him up, speaks again. Daniel goes mute. The angel reaches out and touches Daniel, gives Daniel back his voice. Daniel cries out, stop, I can't handle what you're trying to show me. And so then the angel touches Daniel, imparts strength, and before giving him understanding about this vision, reminds Daniel of the most fundamental spiritual truth. Daniel you are greatly loved all spiritual understanding must proceed from that point so being strengthened by this angel coming to remember and be anchored that he's greatly loved the angel then proceeds to give daniel understanding of this vision and it's a horrible vision it includes sights of war and the sounds of suffering it's a tragedy worse it's a horror And God knows this vision is appalling to Daniel because looking into the future and seeing intensifying and increasing suffering is just too much for anyone to bear. And with Daniel, if we've read through chapter 11 and we read about these two kings and their battles and the suffering that will be inflicted upon people, we might be desperate for hope, desperate for resolve, desperate to see how this is going to work out. And that's precisely when the angel leans over to Daniel and says... The end is just the beginning. The end is just the beginning. C.S. Lewis illustrates this beautifully in The Last Battle. This is the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read it, spoiler alert, because here's the last four sentences of the last book in the trilogy. And for us, this, the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story and their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Daniel, everything you've seen This unparalleled suffering, it's not even chapter one of God's story. It's barely the cover and title page. It's just the beginning of the story. All these visions of the end, they're just setting up the beginning. Or as the angel literally says to Daniel in verse two, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel is promised that resurrection is around the corner of death. When the end arrives, that is when life will truly begin. And just like that, Daniel adds another layer to this complex book that makes it hard for us to digest what he's saying. The philosopher Charles Taylor among others, has convincingly argued that we live in a disenchanted world. And because of that, he always looks like this. (laughs) But he shows that this didn't happen overnight. Taylor asks, why is it virtually impossible not to believe in God, say, in the 1500s? It was virtually impossible not to believe in God in the 1500s. But then in 2000 and beyond, many of us not only find it easy not to believe in God, but inescapable. What changed? And essentially, Taylor argues the culprit is empiricism. What you see, what you can reliably repeat, that's what you get. That's the end of the story. And he says the problem is that many of us have confused scientists as philosophers. Scientists can only describe the world. They can only tell you about its mechanics and its functions. The moment a scientist says, therefore, and makes a statement about meaning, they've moved out of the realm of science and into the realm of philosophy. And Taylor says they've done us a disservice. They've disenchanted the world. And almost everything in Daniel defies how we experience life now. Dreams and visions, angelic beings, miracles like floating hands that write and lions' mouths being shut. Now, resurrection, not to mention the little case of the existence of God. And as Taylor says, it seems inescapable that at some point we're going to have to deny these things because it sounds more like the language of fairy tales and make-believe the author and poet, G.K. Chesterton. He's been called the greatest writer of the 20th century and even the greatest thinker of the 20th century too. And in his most famous work, Orthodoxy, he laments the suicide of modern thought. That's what he calls empiricism. The suicide of modern thought, which reduces life down to what can only be observed. Here's what he had to say. The only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are terms used in the fairy books. Charm, spell, enchantment. I left the fairy tales lying on the floor of the nursery, and I have not found any books so sensible since. It has taken me a long time to find out that the modern world is wrong and my nurse was right. This world is a wild and startling place. But this wasn't just an abstract idea for Chesterton. Elsewhere, he wrote, I do not think there is anyone who takes quite such a fierce pleasure in things being themselves as I do. The startling wetness of water excites and intoxicates me. The fieriness of fire, the steeliness of steel, the unutterable muddiness of mud. Don't you want to experience life like that? That's an enchanted life. As we were praying before the service, uh, someone had a, a picture saying, So often, we're looking at life as if it's still pixelated. Think of your phone when it could first take a photo. If you thought that was capturing reality, you're settling compared to what our phones can capture now. We're settling for a pixelated vision of reality, a disenchanted picture of reality, rather than HD or 4K or whatever it is now. The full picture of what this creation really is, it's enchanted. Daniel beckons us to regain an enchanted reality, to re-envision the world is a wild and startling place. And we're invited to believe that something more is at work in the fabric of creation and that it can even be tapped into. When Lewis and Taylor and Chesterton beckon us then to an enchanted world, they're not saying, shut off your brain. Don't be reasonable. If you read any of their works, they are using their reason. But they are arguing that truth, at least the truest truth, is deeply exciting and even romantic, dare we say, enchanted. And the promise of resurrection then, the promise of resurrection re-enchants the world. Because everything that is beautiful, everything worthy of celebration, everything that we wish could last forever, it can and it will. But I understand, even if we start to permit these things, even if we step back and say, you know what, I want to begin to believe that the world might possibly be as you're describing it. I want to hold on to this promise of resurrection. Isn't belief in resurrection a little bit of a cop-out? I've heard this time and time again when we run Alpha. And I I know it can appear on the surface like a cheap solution, like a shrug of the shoulders saying, ah, don't worry about it, it'll work out in the end. But that is not what the promise of resurrection is about. As the passage is clear, everyone will experience resurrection. Every single person will be physically raised from the dead, regardless if they have faith or not. Every single person will experience resurrection. Some people will be raised to everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. And guess what? Jesus agrees In John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29, he says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear God's voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And this teaching might make us a little squeamish. But this is what makes the resurrection substantial rather than a cheap do-over. Is the promise of resurrection, it re-enchants the world, but it's also a promise of justice. The resurrection is a promise of justice. All the grievous injustices, tragedies and, and of history, all the horrible suffering, all the greatest losses, God will respond in a definitive way. All of the agony and hurt and disorder and the chaos of earth, it will be healed and mended and made whole. Or as J.R.R. Tolkien puts it, everything sad will come untrue. But to do so, God will raise us from the dead, judge us and hold us to account, and some will receive life and others condemnation. And so there's something fearful about resurrection, isn't there? But the promise of resurrection held out to Daniel in this moment isn't meant to induce fear. It's supposed to be comforting, wildly comforting, Daniel is assured that God has not turned a blind eye to suffering. And even though it looks like evil and death and tragedy will have the final say, even though it looks like they will be victorious in the end, God can undo it all in a moment and he will because life will have the final say. Better yet, love will have the final say. And Daniel himself is promised he's going to have a place in this everlasting kingdom, even if he doesn't see it immediately in his own earthly life. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 13. You shall rest, which is a nice way of saying you shall die and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So the simplest way this promise of resurrection can be distilled, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Okay. Daniel, you're going to die, and you will rise again, and God will bring about justice, and God will make everything right. It's all going to be okay. You see, the promise of resurrection it re-enchants the world gives us hope that one day there will be justice. It gives us the assurance that everything's going to be okay. And so having looked at the promise, let's consider how we live with the promise. How do we live with the promise? The promise surely raised a lot of questions for Daniel, right? As it does for us. Uh, how is this going to work out? What happens in between death and resurrection? Where do we end up there, right? And Will it really make everything okay? Will my family be there or not? All these sort of questions come to our mind, but Daniel doesn't get any more, any more details. The angel says to him in verse four, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Daniel, he is wrestling what he's just seen, the suffering it entails, and the promise of resurrection. And so he writes in verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. These are the best words in the book as far as I'm concerned. If you've been confused at any point in Daniel, guess what? Daniel was too. I heard, but I did not understand. That's a relief. Then Daniel, struggling to make sense of it, he asks, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? But again, the angel just repeats the same message in verse 9. Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And again, in verse 13, go your way till the end. How do you just go your way after something like this? What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to live? When I was seven years old, my grandfather died from lung cancer and it was the most devastating thing to happen to me. How do you go your way after you lose a family member? And to my surprise and to my parents' surprise, when we were working through his will, he left to me all of his carpentry tools, two massive boxes of carpentry tools. And I used to spend hours in in my backyard with my grandfather and uh, we we would pretend that we were on these daring missions And he would fashion for me out of wood swords and shields, much to my mother's displeasure. And when he died, he left me two boxes of tools. And for many years, these two large chests just collected dust in our workshop. Sometimes I'd open them and rummage through them to find a tool here or there, but I had no aspirations of being a carpenter. And so for the most part, they went unused. And sometimes I felt guilty growing up Because I had this incredible and thoughtful inheritance an inheritance that some cousins made clear should have gone to them. And decades later, my parents are moving houses and we have to make a decision of what to do with these tools. They say, we can't just keep holding on to them, Alistair. And I felt freedom to take just one or two items as keepsakes and to give the rest away. To have one or two items that Julie and I have hung up in our home and to give the rest away. Why? I realized something, my grandfather really didn't care if I became a carpenter. And frankly, I showed no possibility of that as a youth. If I misunderstood his intent, I might've felt this pressure to be a carpenter. I might've felt guilty and I did at times, but the tools were just a message. They were just a reminder. My grandfather loved me. He wanted me to keep living as if this world is enchanted, to keep seeing that this world is worth fighting for, and not to ever give up that sense of excitement and creativity that we shared together. The tools were just a reminder. And that realization has impacted the way I live. I live with that inheritance, even though I might not have the tools themselves. See, Daniel, he's been given a chest, and it's been packed with visions and dreams, and then it's been told to shut it up, seal it up, go your way, put it in the workshop, let it collect dust, go your way, Daniel. But he doesn't enter back into regular life with a sense of guilt or a sense of pressure to live up to what he's received. Instead, he's sent back into his everyday life knowing that this world is in fact enchanted and exciting and worth fighting for and it impacts the way he lives until his very last breath. Daniel gets to live with the promise. And we see how we live our lives here and now. It matters. After all, Daniel's been told in verse 3 and 10, the wise will shine like the brightness of the sky, like the stars forever and ever. And they shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. The passage is really clear. It is the wise who are going to inherit eternal life, and it's the wicked who are going to inherit eternal contempt. How is that good news? How does that free us up to live in the present? If we're honest, on the surface, this sounds more like Islam or Hinduism. Islam teaches that you can't know your eternal fate. You just can't know. And at the end of time, Your life is going to be weighed in scales. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad, you will inherit eternal life. If your bad deeds outweigh your good, you will go to destruction. And so you have to follow the teachings of Muhammad and you have to submit to the instructions of Islam so that you can have your best shot at success. Hinduism proposes that your karma will influence the way you reincarnate whether you move up or down the social rankings or up or down the hierarchy of species. And so you need to purify your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions because if you don't, if you do bad things, guess what? You might come back as a Dalit. You might come back as a tree stump. You might come back as a worm. You see, essentially the religions of the world, they teach that if you obey If you do the right things, therefore God will accept you. And to be fair, I see Christians fall into this line of thinking all the time. I obey, I do the right stuff, therefore God will accept me. I see agnostics say this all the time. I'm living a good life. If there's a God, therefore that God will see that and accept me. But this misses the point. It misses the mark. This is living as if the promise isn't ours. It's living as if the promise has to be earned or that it's in jeopardy. You're living up to the promise. And when you live this way, you'll never have assurance, you'll never have confidence, you'll never know if it's ever truly yours. How can you know if you're good enough? How can you know if the scales will tip in your favor? How can you know if your karma will ever balance out? And when you think it's all on you, you're going to be wracked with guilt and shame. And worst case scenario, you might become so disillusioned that you throw away any religious thought altogether and you settle for a disenchanted, boring world. Daniel lived with the promise. God promised Daniel you will be raised on the last day Daniel you will stand and have your allotted portion in the kingdom of God the promise has been made God doesn't take promises back the promise is already Daniel's he can take it to the bank so how do we live with the promise how do we live with the promise of resurrection There's a somewhat baffling scene in the Gospel of John. One of my favorite scenes, but admittedly somewhat baffling. Lazarus, close friend of Jesus, the brother of Martha and Mary, becomes sick. He becomes gravely ill. And word is sent to Jesus. And the word is simple: Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Now you would think Jesus would hightail it to Bethany, but that's not what happens. Jesus just goes on with life. He intentionally doesn't go back and it baffles his disciples. Jesus intentionally waits in this passage for Lazarus to die. Not only to die, but he waits three days because in the Jewish uh, mythology of the time, the soul stuck around for three days or so. And so he wanted people to be assured he's dead, he's gone. When Jesus arrives, Martha goes out to meet him. And in John chapter 11, verses 21 through 37, we get this interaction between Martha and Jesus. And here's what we're told. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection and on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Then Mary runs out to Jesus and he just simply weeps and shares their grief. And then he walks to the tomb and he speaks the words, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes back to life. The world is enchanted after all. Tragedy is being undone. Everything will be okay. But Have you ever wondered what's the difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus? Or any of the other resurrection accounts in the New Testament? Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead, the widow of Nain's son being raised from the dead. How is that resurrection different than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If other people have been raised from the dead, what makes his resurrection so special? Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, they all died again. They all died again. Jesus Christ crucified, crucified, put in the tomb three days, raised to life, never to die again. He left death in the grave because the resurrection validated that he really does have eternal life. That death cannot corrupt his life or hold his life in the ground. And so he bursts forth through the grave. Why? He said it, I am the resurrection and the life. And so the promise of resurrection is nothing less than the promise of Jesus Christ himself. You don't go to God and say, give me some resurrection. You go to God and say, give me your son. Give me Jesus Christ. And if he's in you, you will be raised to life. And Jesus assures us of this. He demonstrates to us. I can do this. I can speak the word and the dead come to life. But here's the promise. If you come to me and you believe in me, I will do this for you. We have That promise. But the promise is even greater than that. The resounding message throughout the New Testament is if you believe in Jesus, the spirit of the living God fills you. And as Paul says in Romans, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you. The same power is at work in you. If you're in Christ, you're living with the promise that He will dwell in you and raise you to life on the last day. But guess what? He'll begin raising you to life even now. You see, living with the promise of resurrection is not just the hope that one day we'll inherit eternal life. Living with the promise of resurrection means eternal life has started for you. You're already living it. But you have to go through a process of death and resurrection. Let me spell it out in a few ways. If you live with the promise of resurrection, it changes your character. It changes your character. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. If Christ really dwells in you. Because Jesus will point out times and time again, hey, this area of your life where you feel like you have no control, guess what? You don't. And there's death at work in you. But I've died. I've defeated that. And with me, I will bring about new life. So maybe you've been struggling with addiction or alcoholism or with drugs or with sexual patterns that you can't seem to break. Maybe you're a relentless gossip or or judgmental or just angry and can't seem to get it under control. And you've tried everything by your own strength. But Christ says, I'll do it with you because I've died and come back to life. And so these things in you that need to die, I will help them die and I'll meet you and walk with you, and raise them to life. Resurrection changes your character. It changes your relationships. And that's the part I think most of us wish it didn't change. We could take a Jesus and me thing, but a Jesus and me and all of my neighbors. If you've been racist, I guarantee you, you've been racist, first off. Racism is not a binary, am I racist or not? It's a spectrum of how racist are you. And when you change that mindset, there is always room to repent. But if you've been racist, you inherit the kingdom of God. Who do you think God's going to sit you across at that banquet feast? Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) If God tells us to love our enemies, do you think that maybe at the great banquet at the kingdom of God, he might sit you across from your enemies? People at least you perceived as enemies on this earth? You see, when resurrection takes a hold of us, it starts to show us these patterns of relating that bring about death and destruction. And Jesus says, I've died. There's a new life that work in you where you can start to love people without condition, where you can start to love people even though they have differences. You can start to love and serve people even though they don't share all of your opinions and thoughts and perspectives. You might have tried to do that on your own strength and feel like you're always falling short. And Jesus says, I'll do it with you. You pray and walk with me and walk with others. Resurrection changes our hope. We see that in Daniel. Daniel does not have an optimistic view about earthly kingdoms. They're kingdoms of suffering. Things are going to get worse before they get better. But Daniel doesn't go to despair. Why? Why? promise of resurrection, a promise of justice, a promise that the God of the universe is actually deeply involved here and now, wants to see us start living like we're in his kingdom, but promises that his kingdom will come. We're people of hope, which means it changes the way we grieve. Christians ought to be the best grievers in the universe, but I I fear sometimes we settle for platitudes and proof texts because we're scared of pain. The scriptures say, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The resurrection gives us the power to grieve well. Why? Because whatever awful thing that is happening, it does not have the final say. And we know that Jesus wept because of death, so we can weep too. But we don't weep as if we have no hope because Jesus promises that He'll make things right, He'll make all things new. Do you see? Living with the promise changes everything, changes your character. It changes your relationships, it changes your hope, it changes your grief. But our lives here and now, they're just the title page. They're not even, we're not even in chapter one. When Jesus returns, when he finally does raise us on that last day, when he clothes us in mortality, then he'll wipe away every tear. Then he'll eradicate all suffering. Then he'll declare death is no more and at His word, he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And then we will finally get on with the business of living. Because we've only been living in the shadows. And then we'll see what life is really all about. Because we're destined, Daniel says, to shine like the brightness of the stars. The brightness of the sky forever and ever. And it starts now. It starts now. And so as we put the book of Daniel down as a church, we're reminded the everlasting kingdom of God, it will come. It will come. It will be established because this world is deeply enchanted. God is at work in the fabric of it, overcoming everything. And even if we can't see it, that does not negate its truth. It's a beautiful truth. God's kingdom will come. And whether or not we see its arrival in our lifetime, we live with the promise of resurrection that on the last day, God will raise us from the dead. And if we believe in Jesus, we are guaranteed acquittal. We're guaranteed eternal life. We are guaranteed a place in this everlasting kingdom. And when we live with that promise, we start to live as citizens of that kingdom now. We start to live with eternal life now. We live with the great and profound opportunity of showing people in this world there is more. There is a better quality of life, a better depth of life. And you can have it if you dare, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ.